Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good morning, everybody. I'm here in Beijing, and my guest today, Mike Levin, the CEO of uh, Currency Cloud, talking to me from Boston in the US. We are here to try and distinguish Currency Cloud from the host of many different players in payments today. I think we see payments in the remittance level, payments in the cross-border level, payments between institutions and so on. I want to contextualize what Currency Cloud really is and then to explore a number of themes with Mike on the evolution of financial services, evolution of fintech or innovation in financial services, the role of APIs and how players like Currency Cloud might disrupt the landscape or May, may actually be working with the incumbents to make them stronger. Give us a quick background on the company in its origins and where you brought it up to today, and also a description of it. We call ourselves an embedded cross-border technology company. As distinct from a remittance company or even other payment companies, our customers are other fintechs. We don't market it all to uh, small businesses or to individuals. So that we end the year with about 500 customers. Beyond those 500 customers, there are well over a million end users who put transactions through the system. Some of the well-known brands are Revolut, um, Starling Bank, Standard Bank of South Africa, Santander. So we, we work with about 500 firms, many small fintechs, and many, many challenger banks. Uh, increasingly, our business is not as much payments as it is payments and collections and uh, embedded accounts. We actually provide our clients with a, a multi-currency embedded account, which then allows them to both collect money from their clients and then to send money out. So the business, I think, is going beyond payments into what I would call embedded finance. I want to construct this carefully because um, you seem to be playing in a niche where most traditional financial institutions have got wrong or you know, never really wrapped their mind around it, which is APIs. Many banks around the world you know, um, congratulate themselves with having hundreds of API um, you know, links and stuff like that. But the power of the relationship is still on the side of the institution. Actually, they give very little away to their APIs. And they've got so much legacy at the back end that they, they, the APIs don't really help them to, to move forward and so on. And here you are, an API that can be linked to, into any institutions of any kind quite seamlessly and, and therefore providing a, a gateway towards um, you know, digital finance, digital payments, and so on. But uh, this API you know, concept, like, uh, would you describe it that way? You know, is that what you've perfected over time? The concept was to make the whole of the product uh, available in a sandbox, um, accessible via APIs. When uh, a cross-border firm talks about an API, what they really are talking about is streaming prices. When we talk about APIs, is for beneficiaries, for balances, for account management, for compliance. So if you look at all of the components of actually moving money from client's bank account to the fintech, from the fintech to us, and to distribute it in the market, what's incredibly important in cross-border is not just the money, but the data. Cross-border is really very compliance-driven kind of function. And that really means that all of the data has to move along with uh, the money in the transaction. Because we're selling to fintechs, or banks who then embed the product in their application. The features in our product is going to be whatever their business is. So if they're a lending business, they need to make a cross-border transaction to receive funds or to pay funds out. 
if they're a remittance business, they need to make the transaction to pay, pay out. But in each of those cases, the ownership, let's just say, or the client is not with us. So our client is the fintech. Um, their client is the customer. And so the, the, the API concept that we would be embedded and accessed and, and with any kinds of transaction who we're selling to, let's just say it's a supply chain firm that's using us. So they're going to use us very, very differently than say Revolut uses us. Um, you know, they have a different set of criteria. They have a different relationship with their client. Um, because the product has been really thought through broadly in terms of APIs, each of those firms will use us in a, in, in a way that's unique to themselves, but will have a standard product. So I, I think the distinction here is, is that because we've always thought of ourselves as a piece of embedded technology, the, the API and the richness of the API and its availability in the demo system and availability in our sandbox has always been in, incredibly crucial to what we do. At the same time, uh... You seem to be riding on the Swift, uh, you know, GPI um, infrastructure. So you're actually carrying Swift data. That makes you, you know, an API to Swift, GPI. Um, you know, why do you do that? Uh, why couldn't you have uh, created your own messaging infrastructure? In our world, there's receiving money and paying money out. The average transaction inside the currency cloud is in the thousands of dollars. We're not a remittance firm. So we certainly have some remittance customers where they have average transaction sizes in the hundreds or even tens of dollars. We're generally serving businesses with thousands of dollars uh, worth of transactions. And um, interestingly, those transactions often move via Swift at the request of the customer. We optimize how we send funds, certainly with low cost, low value transactions. They always go via local ACH networks because the cost has to be low. But it's always surprised us that the incredible volume of Swift transactions. Remember, if you're spending a million dollars and buying a property or settling a real estate bill or um, uh, sending money in bulk uh, from a asset manager in London to uh, a series of brokerages in the US, or if you're paying a huge insurance bill, um, that's not gonna move by my network. That's gonna move by a large global network and invariably it moves by Swift. With Swift, the GPI network and its ability to do traces better than we did before and its ability to do to look what's failing and to report on the bank accounts, we find interestingly and surprisingly that we have moving money by Swift is still very much a preferred way to do it. Now, with low value, um, lower price transactions, uh, those all move by a low cost ACH network. I will mention that we actually are in the process of working with Ripple as well. And we'll be also paying out via the Ripple network. The um, skill of our product is actually in its ability to provide the conversions at a low cost and the management facility and the effectively the multi-currency wallet to the customer. Actually, I believe payout networks are commoditized and we don't actually need to own the payout network. Um, what we need to do is to provide sort of the interface to the client, um, the ability for account management facilities and the ability for the client to actually manage their own transactions within whatever their app happens to be. I don't see much competitive advantage, quite frankly. There's a lot of payout networks. We'll use whatever's best. Why not develop your own messaging uh, platform? And what are the, the weaknesses in the existing ACHs, you know, Swift and so on, that you're playing into? Their inability to construct, you know, the, the, 
the last mile, the, the, the completion of the transaction, or um, you know, con- providing the connection or the connectivity between the parties. One of the, the weaknesses in certain ACH networks is the ability to carry data. Is is that <laughs> what banks want from a compliance basis now, and we see this increasingly, is is that um, a very rich data set has to move from the sender through every level of the, the transaction and into the end user. That isn't done effectively in a lot of local ACH networks. And in the end, you're transferring money through banks. It's going to someone's bank account somewhere and moving through a bank account somewhere. There's a, a real requirement to make sure that the data moves correctly. Our skill is the conversion, the management of the account, the compliance. Remember, the we're dealing with third and fourth party transactions, all of which have to be um, authenticated and meet very high compliance standards in financial crime standards for moving money around the world. And so the, the, the skill here is the API, the technology platform that allows you to integrate into whatever your app happens to be, the, the management tools that allow you to um, get reporting and see what those transactions are, um, the pricing of the conversions that we give and, and how all that is integrated into what you do. The actual, there's a lot of payout vendors, whether it's Swift or local ACH networks, plenty of firms who've established banking relationships. And um, we use multiple players to do that. Uh, there's no single player that optimizes the world for our customer anyway. We try to optimize everything for them. Remember, when you're, you're thinking about payments, you're often thinking about the payout network. We look at that as a commodity. And I mean, if we are our, our old friends at Earthport who become Visa, um, we're one of the earlier companies to sort of to commoditize the payout network, established connections all over the world. We used to use them uh, for payout as well before they were acquired by Visa. But th- there's a lot of competition in that network. And, and um, that's not where our expertise lies. Our expertise lies in our ability to connect to whatever the optimum is for the customer and to provide all those management tools and conversion tools and the multi-currency wallet with sub-accounts for all of your clients for both collections and payouts. That's where the technology is, not in the payout side. Well, PayPal would operate in almost all of the segments and the payout, but being very weak on the, you know, the, the, the data, the the functionality aspects that you just discussed, would they be a competitor? PayPal will, uh, which is a large and and, and effective company, uh, certainly sells payment management to a whole host of firms and through that will provide cross-border transactions to them. I said we don't ever compete against PayPal, I'm sure I'm probably wrong. But effectively what we're selling is the embedded account, which is embedded in the application of a client as a different kind of service than what PayPal is providing. I mean, Payout has their own global payout network and they actually pay out through many of the same partners that we pay out through. So it's not like they own a global payout network. They've constructed through banks and um, uh, payment service providers and local firms all over the world, um, a payout mechanism that they use. And we use some of the same partners as they do. So the competition there is on the cross-border side. And remember, they're very expensive on cross-border as well. A quality firm selling um, very much card-based payout on a global basis, but uh, very different in terms of what its technology is providing to the client. How does that translate into your universe of income? If you're not on the payout side, it means that foreign exchange is not a source of income. A transaction fee on would, would be a source of income, but you know, at which point of the transaction? We're a technology company. Um, half of our income is SaaS fees, which is the, 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 the fee to uh, use the platform. And the other half is transaction related, which is both foreign exchange and payment fees. And that's very different than most remittance companies or most payment firms. Firms actually pay a technology fee to use our product. And that technology fee represents approximately half all of the income of the firm. Different kind of uh, 
pricing orientation than a, a payments firm that's totally making money on transactions. We believe that uh, transaction pricing will get gets commoditized and compressed, and that the value of the product and what we're we're providing to our clients is actually the technology product or the technology value as much as it is the payment network. Depending on the maturity of the customer, their size, we'll have different ways of working with us. But in general, um, the way people work with us is a mix of uh, access to the technology and the transaction fees, which again is a very much a differentiator relative to a, a fairly standard uh, payment firm, which is only making money on the transactions. At which point do you make money on the transaction? At, when, at which point do you have access to FX? Because that's where, you know, most traditional remittance companies try to make their income. So at which point do they hand that over to you? And we receive the money from the clients and we were converted and we make our money there. We, we disclose all our pricing to the client, plus we disclose what our markup is. Our client will then choose how they disclose that to their client. And they may, may or may not disclose that at all. But when we work with Revolut or Starling, they're seeing uh, the price that I'm buying at, the price that I'm selling at. Um, part of their contractual relationship with us will be the markup that they're paying to us or the basis points over what we're buying. In the FX world, there's no such thing as a mid-market rate. There's a buy and a sell. But yep. uh, firms always put on their website what they say is the rate, which is never the rate. It's the mid-market rate, which isn't exactly what the rate is. But we'll be disclosing to um, all of our clients what we're paying and what we're selling at and how much money we're making. And that will be part of our contractual relationship with them. So we certainly right. make money on that conversion and as well as on the um, the actual payout. In other words, there's a, a local ACH fee or a SWIFT fee and we would charge the client for that. But all of that pricing is totally transparent to our customer. One of the issues with the bank, and I, I find this even with some transactions I make in my own bank account, is you don't really know what you're paying until you get your statement at the end of the month. Right. And you don't know where the, the money is gone. Um, that's also very true in the card networks as well. And uh, your, your statement could be, if you do something in the beginning of your cycle, it, it, it's not going to necessarily come until the end of the cycle. And you might not even pay till 30 days after that. So the rate that you're getting could be 60 days after the time you've done the transaction. That's not acceptable in the world that we live in. We're disclosing per transaction, whatever the pricing is relative to our client. What percentage of income is uh, technology platform and what percentage is transaction? It's close to 50-50, maybe a little more. We, we don't want it to be much different. We think that's the, the appropriate way to do it. When players like Visa become a shareholder, what is it that they're looking at from you? Because you are potentially, you know, a disruptor to their business, right? Or is it to onboard what you do to into the models that they are developing themselves? Throughout Europe and starting to be in the U.S., there's a whole series of firms uh, effectively in the debit card business who can offer real-time exchange rates. And we provide a, a foreign exchange service to many of those firms that allows them to be very competitive in what they provide in terms of pricing to their customer. Effectively, Visa looked at that <laughs> and said, you know, this is something we would like to have inside our shop. So they basically invested in us so that we could work together with them and actually improving the kinds of rates that they ultimately will offer to their clients. I think there's a recognition on the part of the, the larger card networks. It's not so much the networks as it's the, um, it's the participating banks who are actually doing the, the conversion work that challenger banks and their ability to bring down Be prices for clients is actually is gonna transform the way that people use money. And in the end, banks will need to offer the kinds of pricing that challenger banks use. And, and effectively Visa invested in us so that we could look at that and work together with them on how they can reduce their own costs. So when you do make money from the 
FX, how do you play that part of the field, which is, uh, you know, you're not a volume player. You, you know, how, how do you get the best prizes? Are you competitive? I'm not taking positions against my client. Okay. So I'm not a trading house. It's very important for the company. If we look at the flow that goes through the firm on a monthly basis, we end the year at a $30 billion run rate. So that's two to $3 billion per month is going through. If you were a trading firm, you would arbitrage that, but we don't do that. We have, you made a very conscientious decision that we're not an FX trader, we're a payment shop. So every trade that comes in is priced to the client. They know what we're, what money we're making on it. And we're not taking positions on that at all. We certainly have to maintain regulatory capital and maintain certain other kinds of balances to keep things going. And we certainly often have to maintain balances so that we can speed payments along. But when you deal often with an FX broker, they may tell you a price, but you're never quite sure what price they're getting. And yeah. they're not disclosing that and they could be arbitraging that. That's not our business at all. Our business is disclosure of what we're buying, what we're selling, and how much you're paying um, to our client uh, all the time. Well, it seems that FX is where the winners and losers are being, you know, like uh, played out. Prices are becoming more transparent to customers. So, you know, you, you need to be transparent, but you also need to be the cheapest or the most, you know, cost effective in the market. So what's your proposition that you... You provide a huge player is going to get a better pricing than a small player. Our volumes with our banks are sufficient so that we get what I would call the best pricing that we get from them. Remember, we're in the B2B market. So it, it's not my volume. Vietnam is relatively low. If I'm sending money to Vietnam, I'm probably sending dollars to pay for manufacturing. So remember, when you're in the remittance business, you're having um, to pay out many currencies because you're actually making local currency disbursements. And yeah. those may be restricted currencies. They may be low volume currencies. They may be higher volatile custom currencies. Mm -hmm. And then whether um, you're, you're paying your uh, factory workers or you're paying whatever your goods in the Philippines or in uh, Latin America or in, or in Europe, that's going to be done in whatever your local currency is. You said collections is an increasingly important business. That's, I'm curious about that. You know, how did that business come about? What do you actually do in collections? So when we look at what the business of our clients was, they buy steel from Germany. Then they also sell steel to Germany. <laughs> in, in each case, there's a pound euro or a pound dollar transaction. Um, in one case, I'm an importer. In the other case, I'm an exporter. So the money is moving in, in both directions. Um, we have the expertise in actually doing the foreign exchange transaction. They wanted us to go beyond payments to actually start receiving funds for them as opposed to paying them. So if you have a global business, you might be uh, sourcing globally so you're importing, but you're also selling back globally as well. Um, companies wanted both the importing and the exporting part or the selling and receiving to us. This is incredibly important. Payments is a, is a relatively standardized market. Uh, in other words, we compete with a lot of different payment firms. There's a lot of different ways to provide it. And in general, when we talk about payments, companies generally do it the same way all over the world. Collecting and receiving is not done the same way all over the ways. It's not as commoditized. It's primarily done by banks, uh, old style lockboxes. There's a series of other data issues with that because often you would be collecting funds from people who you don't know and you need to be able to understand the compliance and the regulatory component of that. So the constructing the collections business or the receivables business, how we collect the data from the customer, how we interact with the customer, how the customer manages that data is actually very, very different in, in collections. So it actually took us um, quite a long time to set up 
effectively our, our wallet, our embedded wallet, um, where we, our customer could collect and track um, from all of their customers. And we collect via Swift, so we can collect from all over the world. And we do local collections in a series of markets at all as well. So what are you doing that makes this a viable business for you today that many have failed in the past? You know, from, and is there a temptation to go into supply chains like uh, EDI networks and stuff like that? I'm not a collections agency. What I'm doing is I'm providing a facility to my clients to set up an account for each of their clients within my system for them to manage with their system how their customers pay their bills right. and then to provide the advantage of a low cost transfer, foreign exchange transfer to their clients when uh, there are two different currencies on either side of that transaction. So basically I'm selling to Germany or I'm selling to Singapore. My customer is paying me locally. Um, we want the advantage of the, um, the low cost of that uh, transaction and the ease of the transaction and the ability to monitor the transaction to be um, uh, provided by the firm that I'm, that I'm selling to. My customer, the FinTech firm or the bank or the supply chain firm, EDI is the older generation of supply chain firms. For to handle the money, you need to be regulated. And uh, a supply chain firm that's providing data or invoicing or uh, any of that kind of supply chain management isn't necessarily a regulated financial firm. So we would work with a supply chain firm to allow them to collect money from their customers or to pay out and to provide that regulatory component to, to what they're doing. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm regulated by states in the US, I'm regulated by the FCA, by the Dutch Reserve Bank. We have to be um, regulated and monitored all over the world because we're receiving uh, customer funds. So th that, that's very different business than a supply chain business, which is, is purely a data business and a technology business, not a regulated financial business. We've seen many different players trying to you know, scale this market. And even culturally, there would be players in Europe where the whole accounts receivable is even regulated. Whereas in Asia, many businesses, small businesses to each other, you know, they, they try and stretch their payments as long as, as, as long as possible. So what you're saying is that insofar as rates and transparency is a feature, you have clients who are using your, your platform for collections. My business is only uh, where it's a cross-border transaction. Let's say it's a, um, a business that we've seen uh, coming up recently is uh, European wealth managers who are investing in the U.S. stock market. They need to receive funds from individuals all over Europe in euro. They then need to convert those funds and place them with the U.S. stockbroker. That stockbroker then needs to return dollars to them based on whether the market's going up and down. And those need to be paid back in euro to their clients. So when you're thinking about collections, you're thinking about industrial goods, but industrial goods are only one part of that business and uh, an important part. But if you think of uh, the flow of funds that goes in stock trading. Um, that's an, another area. If you think of the flow of funds that go in insurance, or if you think of the flow of funds that go in um, lending, for example. So there's a whole series of, um, of use cases that go beyond just um, supply chain and industrial goods. And I'm providing the account, the ability to monitor that account, access by an API so it integrates with whatever the app or the business of the client, client our client has, so they can provide that service to their customer. You seem to be playing in two or three different key, key areas, right? Collection, the transaction, and then the data and so on. Now, how would you describe competition? Like, where is it coming from? There's currently um, BAS companies, banking as a service companies who are bundling services. There are remittance companies, uh, TransferWise, who sell to end users. There's um, banking companies, uh, Banking Circle. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a whole host of firms 
that offer a series of cross-border services. Um, we try to look at all of those as a channel for us. I'm selling to other people where I'm embedding my cross-border service in what they're providing to their client. And I've optimized my cross-border service, made it accessible via an API on a basis that um, you can use whatever you need in it because the API is, is very, very differentiated. So it can be used in a different fashion by different clients. So it's, it's always a, it's a very rich market. But what we look at is we're a, a cross-border specialist, an embedded specialist, and whatever the route to market is, we want our product to move down that route. If you can scale, you know, then, you know, your, your business model works. Otherwise, any API player can sort of build the functionalities that you have and be done with it. It's the price that you charge to, uh, the, on the technology side, is that a big um, a distinguishing factor in that you are a competitive uh, API so, or platform play, uh, provider. Our model um, lends itself to venture investment. If you're making basis points on each transaction, then you need to get pretty big till you make enough basis points to cover your costs, um, especially as the cost of global acquisition gets higher and higher. The area under the curve, which is the area while you're building out the network and establishing the infrastructure, that has to be financed. And yet when it does get financed, it, it becomes quite um, an interesting business. So uh, it's why you see a lot of fintech venture investment. When you get to scale, then in fact, uh, you start to become profitable. But the area from when you start to when you scale gets to be pretty large. And Ripple's data infrastructure is a lot more complex and you know, ambitious. Are you going to be involved in their, uh, you know, their blockchain type infrastructure and so on? We've talked to Ripple for many years and we've finally come to an agreement. They're a global payout network and we're going to be using them. And with one integration to Ripple, we actually can get a whole series of um, uh, payout countries that we otherwise would have to integrate locally to do. So we'll be developing a series of payout channels, um, working with Ripple and whatever partnership happens after that, that's the immediate need that is to use them as, as a payout network. And we'll see where it goes from there. And, and then there will you know, come the central bank digital currencies if they ever take off. But you know, the whole idea of the complexity of the data, even the, the, the tokenization of data and so on, that's work that is underway. So Ripple seem to be using you to solve a more immediate business problem that they have. Stable coins and CBDC, and um, right now that's not important, but that will be important in the future. But remember, what that does is it reduces friction, it reduces transfer cost, it doesn't provide integration into a business, and it doesn't provide um, any of the end user tools that we're giving a business to manage whatever their flows are. To the extent that you start to reduce friction and reduce cost, that's going to be good for everybody. And if that happens via CBDC, that's great. I mean, there's a global infrastructure uh, using, you know, CLS Bank um, and uh, with sovereign currencies. And that infrastructure is old. Um, SWIFT is part of it. Uh, the CLS Bank is part of it. And uh, could there be innovation in that in the next 10 years? I, I certainly would hope there'd be payments are not centrally cleared. And there could be real innovation coming there in the future. And that will reduce risk, uh, reduce friction and reduce price on a global basis. So I would think that's a future. And right now we're solving a much more practical problem, which is how do I get money from the US to India <laughs> in a way that's quick and efficient? And that's a very different kind of a, a problem right now, but there'll be some global changes I think coming. How do you think that the payments industry will evolve from uh, origination to payout? And which areas would be co highly commoditized and which areas where the value is, where, you know, a player would define, um, you know, how payments will evolve? So remember, anything that's a transaction gets commoditized over time. So consequently, you need scale. So you need very large because you're 
the amount of money that a firm that is in the transaction business makes per transaction will get compressed over time um, as it becomes commoditized and more people enter the market. Some of the remittance firms have let TransferWise and others have done a real service to everyone by putting pressure on pricing, which then filters its way into business as well. The issues become ease of use. It becomes the technology in our case that we can provide to the client and the technology and pricing on the actual transaction side over time reduces, as we've seen in the card networks as well. So you're quite right that you see people consolidating because you need to have scale. And we can always debate what scale means, but it, you know, it, it means you need to be big and you need to be global in, in terms of what you do. And that's the, the, the future of the, the payment, but there'll always be single card or local providers. Describe to me a little bit about your technology tech and how you constructed, you know, how much are you into open source, driving from it, building into it, and how are you organized on the technology front? The amount of technology investment is substantial. We use a tremendous number of tools. Remember, we are cloud native in the way that we approach everything. And that requires a tremendous amount of investment on our part and in terms of foresight and thought and how we're doing it, because that's the future of everything. Our product has been thought through from the beginning that it will be embedded and so that it will be handling second, third, and fourth party transactions and need to let the, the data flow and provide the control for the parties that are part of it. And that's very different so that what's embedded in our technology is a business model. And often the differentiator of what we do is as much that we've embedded a business model of embedded finance into the product. And that becomes a competitive differentiator. All I'm doing is offering click-through remittance transaction to a customer who badges their site. They come in, they see it, they click through, they get a good rate. That's a very different kind. And they could optimize a whole series of things in what they're doing. We've optimized the fact that we're going to be providing the product to other people who are providing it to other end users. And that's a very different value proposition. And it's a very different technical approach and that impacts everything that we do and how we think but, about it. Yeah, but at the same time, it impacts the organizations that want to work with you. So you are actually commoditizing the, the technology stack of, the, of this business. Well, again, we get more and more efficient over time. Um, how do we embed our product more effectively in different kinds of businesses with different requirements over time? It's always thinking through that embedded business model, which is where we come from. Now, some last words on where you're taking the organization as a business. What's your next big challenge? Our plan in 2019 had been actually to open our office in Singapore. And we ended up deferring that. The virus came. Everything got shut down. We had employees ready to move. Um, we now have just started to hire people. And so one big approach is to develop our Asian business, which relative to perhaps other companies has been undeveloped. We have certainly uh, plenty of Asian customers, but we're now starting to invest in that. Um, in terms of hiring both in Singapore and re relocating expertise and making that part of our global network. Another strategy is other segments of fintech, wealth tech, lend tech, pay tech. So as fintech develops and matures and the companies get larger, we find the need for our cross-border component becomes more and more important. So, and uh, the collections part is part of that because people are looking for the embedded wallet. There's geographic expansion, there's market segment expansion. And I think the third part we're seeing with embedded finance is we're seeing more and more non-regulated companies want to embed financial functions. And that means that we'll actually have to provide our regulation in a way that we hadn't been in the past to more and more firms. So I, I think you expand both on terms of region, you expand both in terms of market segment, and you expand both in terms of the kinds of clients that we service. In terms of the bandwidth of your organization, do you pursue the larger players and, and the more complex ones, like you mentioned, the securities houses and so on, 
uh, as opposed to the small players who just want to embed the functionality into, you know, like it could be a corporation, it's not even a financial institution trying to put a payment payment app into their supply chain, for example. How much time yeah, do you spend with We have dealt with many of the fintechs who are big and successful now who use us, started with us as absolute startups with, with nothing going. So we're actually very startup friendly. We have announced and talk all the time about our partnership with Revolut, but our partnership with Revolut started when they were a tiny startup and weren't doing any business at all. So we are, are quite friendly to early stage startups um, in the fintech world. Um, but as, as we mature, we're also starting to sell to or provide services to larger and medium-sized banks um, as well. So we have to do both of those. Uh, I think you have to stay on the innovation end um, with fintechs because there's a lot of innovation. We learn a lot from those customers. But remember, to go back to the basic business model, I'm not selling to end users. So the idea of selling to a single corporation, usually that would not be um, a client who would be using us, again, because we're not that end user tool. Somebody else has got those end user tools. I'm selling the infrastructure to them. You're not an API. We're totally an API company, but we're selling to other fintechs. We're not selling to end users. In other words, someone is providing an end user service and they're using us as a service to provide it. And so our API is sold to the kind, and that's the kind of firm that we sell to. You could sell to a small corporate. We would not be the person who is the vendor who's selling that. Now, we certainly have clients of ours who are selling to small vendors, selling yeah. to small corporates, but yeah. the actual engagement with that corporate isn't being done by us. It's being done by our client. And it's a very important business model point. So it's, okay. it's all API, but it's API to other firms that are embedding our product, whatever their service is. And their service could be trade finance. Their service could be corporate accounting. Their service could be business accounts. Their service could be stockbroking. Their service could be shipping. Their, you know, the service could be all sorts of different things, but we're providing it to the provider and they're providing it to somebody else. So that's a very important distinction. Banks have not been very good as users of APIs, but you seem to suggest that the growth model for you is that as long as there's, you know, there's a need for fintechs going out to talk to banks to build APIs, you're the back end of that. We're the back end of that, yeah. And, we, and we're happy to stay at the back end of that. That's what we do. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.